Hey, this is Sophia. And this is Natasha. And welcome to another episode of Winter's Blooms Talks, which is an extension of our website, Winter's Bloom. Hey everyone, um, welcome to another episode of Winter's Blooms Talks. Um, though, put a pin in that because we may be rebranding soon or renaming soon, but for the moment, we're still Winter's Blooms Talks. Um, today, we're talking about dictionary definitions and DNA tests. And the reason we're talking about this um, is because a while ago, I drafted this post um, that will be released shortly at the end of February called Disrupting Identity. And um, this is on our blog, Winter's Bloom. And Sophia and I have a habit of when either of us uh, draft anything, just like sending a quick voice note to the other person to have a read over it and send any feedback. Um, it's always super helpful just to run that stuff by each other. And this time, Sophia was curious and like actually disagreed with some of the things that I mentioned in that article, um, mainly to do with language and dictionaries. Um, and yeah, so we thought that this would be a really good opportunity to show how we um, how we deal with disagreement um, because that's you know kind of the foundation of Winter's Bloom. We wanted this to be a place where people can have open conversations and respectfully disagree with each other. So we hope that we model that today. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess to kick us off, Sophia, when I initially asked you to read that article, what were some of your initial reactions or initial thoughts? Um, so I think the article kind of had several different strands, um, which, if, of course, if you haven't read it yet, um, I think it would make sense <laughs> to maybe pause this podcast, have a read, so then you kind of follow the train of thought. Um, but I thought the, well, firstly, there's there's two kind of concepts that you mentioned, um, one which I was familiar with, which is the one drop uh, rule. Um which essentially means that anyone who has one drop of um, black heritage or black blood is considered by default black. Um, and I think from my understanding of it, it was kind of a social legal um, term that was kind of created um, to ensure that particularly black, well, in the context of America, black Americans um, couldn't inherit um property or land or so forth i wasn't familiar with um i actually can't remember what the term is now blood quantum blood quantum that's what it's called sorry i forgot for a second but yeah (laughs) blood quantum i thought it was blood blood quantum but i was like have i just made that up from like quantum physics or something but yeah i wasn't familiar with that kind of concept um which again refer back to natasha's article because i think you do a really good job of explaining it um with um kind of indigenous communities um And so I think those two ideas and how you put them in parallel to each other um, was really interesting for me. Um, I guess to give a bit of my (laughs) perspective on where the like disagreement came in was a statement which I think it just came across quite strongly um, in a flippant way, almost, where you were like... um, I've always thought I'm rephrasing, uh, paraphrasing this, so I apologize. But I always thought like dictionary definitions were stagnant or something of the of that sort. And then um, you kind of made this remark where you're like, "Oh, but enough about <laughs> dictionary definitions anyway." And then I was like, "Hmm, that's um, interesting." And I kind of wanted to pick that up. So yeah, that's kind of my my thought on um, the article and how this conversation came to be. So yeah, just to give uh, listeners a little bit of background. So this um, this post that I drafted was actually inspired by um, a podcast episode of this other podcast called All My Relations, and it's hosted by two Indigenous women, and they offer a lot of um, really interesting insight from Indigenous perspective um, and have reframed a lot of my thinking. Um, and in this one particular episode, I'm pretty sure it's just called On Blood Quantum, um, they talk about the one drop rule and blood quantum. And so this is very much inspired by them. So just wanted to give them a huge shout out. Um, and and I think the best way to approach this 
I think is through a series of questions that Sophia and I have kind of developed to tease out some of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can always kind of circle back to your reactions and, and stuff like that. <laughs> but I think one of the things that you had mentioned was like that, that phrase that I said, and I was trying to find it just so we can, we can read it for the folks. Okay. Yeah. So I think there's this part kind of towards the middle where um, I've just finished that discussion of the one drop rule in blood quantum. And I say the complexity of this story is conveniently lacking in dictionary definitions of blood quantum. Mm -hmm. Um, Dictionary definitions feel static. Enough about Mm -hmm. dictionaries for now. Um, Just to kind of jump off of your reactions, um, I'm curious about what your relationship with language is. Yeah, so I kind of was reflecting on this before the podcast, as I do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I guess the the first thing that came to to mind was the fact that I studied languages at university. Um, So I studied Latin and Italian, and I think that in and of itself is somewhat emblematic of my relationship um, with languages. I think I'm interested in how languages develop over time, though I would by no means say that I am like a linguist because I haven't really studied it um, in a more linguistics, in a more formal setting. And even linguistics kind of branches off into kind of like phonetic linguistics and all these other different interesting parts of language but I would say that um I do have a somewhat interest um (laughs) layman interest um in how languages develop and in particular I was quite interested during my studies in how um Latin language branched into the romantic languages of Italian French um in particular um but then I guess I was kind of reflecting more and going beyond that. Oh, like I studied at university. What is my relationship with language on a more personal level, I guess. Um, And I would say that it's, if I can make a bold statement (laughs) to say it's um, the same as other people's relationship with language and that it's one that's intimate. Um, And I think like any intimate relationship, it has its ups and downs. Um, you know, there are beautiful moments in which I feel that language really cooperates with me and it expresses um, my inner world and my inner thoughts and it, you know, manifests that in the external thought, in the external world um, for other people to interact with that and to engage with other people and connect with other people. And then there are days when I feel like it isn't honest and faithful and accurate and it actually causes me distress. It, you know, words evade me. and they fail to signify and translate that noise in my mind. Um, and so, yeah, like most relationships, I would say it's a bit of a rocky road filled with lots of expectations. Um, but how about you? <laughs> um, thanks for sharing that, Sophia. And I, I really like how you did kind of like the, you know, the university level and then like also the personal level. Um, and as you were talking, it made me think of this quote by... Um, Audre Lorde, I can't remember what the essay is called, but it's in her um, her book, Sister Outsider. And um, yeah, I'll just go ahead and read it. It says, poetry is not only dream and vision, it is the skeleton architecture of our lives. It lays the foundation for a future of change, a bridge across our fears of what has never been before. And then later she goes on to say, for women then, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of light within which predicates our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. The farthest horizons of our hopes and fears are cobbled by our poems, carved from the rock experience of our daily lives. Mm. Um, And I kind of thought of this quote because I feel, I mean, you and I are writers and we've, we've been intimately involved with each of our writings um, for a long time now. And I think when it comes to this question, there's like a few different things that come up. Um, I think I like how you said you have like an intimate relationship with language. Like, I think I feel that way as well. I feel that language has allowed me to convey many different things at many different points um, through my writing and has really been a way that I I feel most comfortable communicating. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I feel I've been kind of in this newer phase of my life. 
um, where I feel the best way that I can describe this is that there was this conversation I was having with someone um, in Scotland who was saying that the people who originally lived in Scotland, or maybe it was like one group, I'm not 100% sure, but it was this conversation we were in the Highlands and they were saying how um, the people in Scotland, like the, the landscape is almost equal parts water and land, if not in some place more water than land. And so the ways that they would navigate the world, like if they were to draw a map, it wouldn't be a map of land with waterways. It would be a map emphasizing the water um, because mm -hmm. that was really the ways that they um, navigated. And that kind of did that weird like flip in my brain where I was like, whoa, like, you know, like the water kind of <laughs> rose up to more prominence. Um, and I feel like my relationship with language is kind of like that. Um, you know, my mom and a lot of the older folks in my family, like my aunties and my Lala and stuff, they all spoke Tagalog because um, they're from the Philippines. And that was just something that never made its way down to our generation. I mean, there's mm -hmm. like certain words that I know and I can like look up little phrases. Um, but I feel, I feel that that is a relationship that I don't, I, I don't feel comfortable with like that language and mm. that has gotten me into thinking which which circles a little bit back into my mindset when I was writing this post is that it circled me back into the ways like the reasons why I guess on a personal level like the reasons why I personally don't know that language like what are the mm. power dynamics there that made that decision in our family and then you know more broadly um you know, other people who don't know their language. Like, I know that that's not a unique experience. Mm. Um, so I guess this is kind of circling into the next question. So maybe we can just transition and deepen this discussion. Um, but I wanted to then ask you, what purpose does language serve for you? So I guess, yeah, on any level, I know you kind of mentioned the university and personal level. Yeah, um, and I, I do want to say that it would be good um, to touch upon what you were mentioning as well, not... Um, inheriting your mother's mother tongue because uh, that's something I think we we share as well um, and I'd be interested to explore that a bit further <laughs> in more depth um, in a bit but in terms of um, the purposes that language serves yeah, for me or in my opinion um, I guess the the first one that comes to mind is the most basic level if I can say that um which is I think it serves you know a survival purpose we need to communicate um and work together in order to survive and I think language in its various forms is first and foremost used in that way like babies crying um non-verbal communication where we can't use verbal communication even like dancing I think is a is a form of language and one that was definitely used um amongst um, West African slaves when they were being transported during the uh, transatlantic slave trade and didn't have a common tongue um, to speak. Um, but I think, you know, as we've kind of moved out of, I guess, the typical like cavemen era, um, there is kind of this whole study into language and there's like social linguists and psych psychological linguists, I think they're called, which have looked at what function language plays um, in other roles that aren't primarily communication. So how does language feature in exploration and play with, I don't know, Scrabble or like crossword? Um, that's kind of more technical. But then I guess also like from a sociological perspective, how does language um, explore identity, which is something I think we've definitely done on Winter's Bloom. Um, but ultimately I think language, the purpose that language serves is really particular to the time and the particular community um, and setting that it's been created and developed in. Um, I think it, you know, interacts with every aspect of human life um, in a society. And so really in order to understand it, I think it's really looking at it in relation to society and the, the historical kind of context in which it emerges um, to understand what the function of language is at any particular time. It's <laughs> my cop out answer. No, I love that. And I think your your education in language is definitely showing because I was like, oh, man, that all sounds super good. I could never put it that way. <laughs> um, 
But I think, I think for me, and, and I think this will eventually circle back to that conversation. Cause yeah, I would, I would like us to take a moment to unpack that, especially our different perspectives on, um, you know, our mother's language. Um, but yeah, I think I, I definitely agree with you that language serves the purpose of, of communicating. Um, and I also like what Audre Lorde said in, in her quote about it's like, it's integral. It's like vital to survival. And I definitely agree with that, which, which you also touched on as well. And I think I, I know that, well, maybe I don't know this. I feel, okay. So I feel kind of mixed. Like I know that there is a lot of emphasis placed on the words that, that we use, um, mm-hmm. in terms of making like, well, I guess, I guess in, in kind of like an organizing activist sense in terms of like making social, creating social change or igniting social change. Um, and I sometimes feel mixed on that because I'm like, I'm like, yes, words are super powerful and they can definitely make you feel things like how many times have you watched a speech or listened to something where you've just been like, mm. oh my God, super energized by it. And then also sometimes I'm like, but they're just words. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I definitely get a little bit conflicted about that. I think I, I definitely, um, veer a little bit more towards words are super powerful kind of thing. Um, but I, I think kind of bringing it back to um, that discussion on on language and which languages we prioritize in our lives, I really do feel, and I know that we've talked about this before, that language is, is really an important gateway into, um, you know, like, for example, our heritage or our culture. And mm-hmm. um, that's something that has been showing up a lot in more of my creative writing recently is like, what are the languages that have been privileged in my life and what are the languages that haven't and why is that the case? Mm. Um, and I think that, which I know we'll get into the whole uh, discussion on dictionary definitions later, but um, like that's also been, you know, like why is it that English is one of the languages that's spoken most around the world? Like why is it that a lot of these other languages are dying or mm. that people just, you know, don't know them and, why is it that people like, for example, um, in the Philippines, it's like, you need to know English to get ahead in life. And why mm-hmm. is that the case? And I know, I know why, you know, but it's just, mm-hmm. um, those power dynamics, I think, like, I can't, I can't think of the purpose language serves without thinking of that. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I guess I don't have a specific question, but I just wanted to open up the conversation to allow you to share a little bit about, you know, not knowing your mother tongue and any thoughts you might have on that. Yeah. So just before I jump into that, um, you know, it was striking, I guess it seems like such a simple, not a simple question, but like an obvious question to be like, Oh, why is English um, as international and as it is, I guess, and spoken so much around the world. And yet for sure, I would say, you know, the obvious kind of elephant in the room is colonization. Um, and this is something I kind of want to get onto maybe a bit later on. Um, but I think just to touch upon briefly, English as a language, I think is quite malleable. Um, we allow a lot of words to kind of influx into the English language. And so I think, um, and in a way, even the language is a mirror, I would say of colonization style, like just to kind of give it some context, um, the way that f- the French <laughs> and I also hate saying like the French and the English but I just don't know what the best <laughs> way it is to describe <laughs> colonizing <laughs> people from France and England but the French when they were colonizing um, took a really uh, direct rule um, a direct form of colonization which meant that they implemented their systems they were you know like they sent over their own people to govern those people um, whereas the English kind of took an indirect form of colonization, which was we will kind of create this hierarchy where we sit at the top, but we'll essentially allow um, native people, the elite or whatever, the bourgeoisie within those countries to colonize for us. So kind of like let them do the dirty work for us and we'll give them kind of like this smidgen of, I don't know, um, power that we have. Um, And I think that's really reflected in the language in the sense that they, unlike the French, who are so (laughs) uptight about keeping their language pure, that they even have um, a department in the Ministry of Education that is like dedicated to keep out Anglicisms, um, which I think is ridiculous. The English, on the other hand, you know, like uh, apparently like 70% of 
modern day English words come from French. Um, obviously not directly the same. There are some, but you know, we've, we kind of suck up everything and we allow, um, our identity in terms of the language to kind of be molded, um, for a purpose that is also, um, as insidious as the French directly doing it and imposing their language and forcing people to learn it. Um, so anyway, that's kind of a whole tangent, but a side note, which I thought was interesting and maybe we'll get into it more later, maybe we'll, um, but going back to, I guess, your original, um, not question, but space for discussion on, um, not having the opportunity to learn my mother's mother tongue. Um, it's interesting actually because I, I ask her now that I'm older and I have been asking for a couple of years like oh why didn't you teach me more of it um I understand broken English but my mum speaks broken English and Wolof um and I was like why didn't you teach me Wolof especially now that I kind of would like to one day return to the Gambia and it's kind of like okay now I have an extra barrier of I'm already a Westerner, already be perceived as white, but now I won't even be able to speak the language <laughs> to defend myself. Um, <laughs> and she told me that when I was growing up, um, she spoke to a child psychologist. I can't remember if I was having delayed speech or I had some kind of um, like small learning difficulty or whatever speech difficulty when I was younger. And they told her that she should stop speaking her mother tongue because it would confuse me while I was trying to learn English. And I have such a bone to pick with this because if my mum, my mum's native language was French, Spanish, um, even Chinese, they probably would have been like, I mean, now a day is Chinese. I think they probably back in her time would have been like, yeah, stop speaking Mandarin or whatever. <laughs> um, but if it was French or Spanish or any other language that has kind of some kind of international acclaim and is respected, then you know, she would have been encouraged to speak that language to me rather than to to not. And I think, yeah, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about power dynamics and why are some languages more valuable than others? Um, and also, I guess, for me, that kind of where to draw the line, because for a language to be as enduring, which I hope I kind of somewhat explained with English, it has to allow itself to be malleable and to be open to influx of influences. Whereas I think some other languages that are dying out. Um, I'm not saying this is the case for all of them. And again, disclaimer, I'm not a linguist, but I feel that if things are more fixed and they're not open to changing, then it's more likely that those like dialects or, you know, more local languages will eventually die out. But yeah, those are my rambles. <laughs> I just, first of all, wanted to say I'm super grateful for your perspective, like the first half of your answer about like the differences between English and French and the different strategies of colonizing. Like, I think that that was a really good way. Like that, basically that, there's a lot in there that I wasn't super aware of and also a really good way to show the different interconnections of like the forces of colonization, colonization and the reasons why certain languages are the way they are now. Um, and then also, yeah, just for sharing your story about not learning Wolof. And to be honest, that made me like I knew what was coming when you were like my mom <laughs> talked to a child psychologist. I was like, oh no, <laughs> don't do that. I'm kidding. Okay. You know, some nice ones. But um, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I think that's all too common. It didn't exactly happen that same way with my mom. I just think that my mom wanted us to be more American. She thought. Like kind of what I mentioned before, she thought that like we would have more opportunities or she just didn't see why Tagalog would be useful. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, she never taught us. Say that again. No, so I was just going to say, it's like, even if it's not like, you don't have to have had a child psychologist to tell you that, to know that that's like the unspoken thing in society. Um, mm -hmm. And again, it, it, what you said there just really drives home to me that conflict between language being a really um liberating and explorative exercise of identity but also being somewhat restraining in the sense that you know you speak this language and speaking this language can make you seem or can kind of impose this one dimensional identity and the you know being american and filipino can't coexist on some level um and like there has to be one that's compromised and i think i don't know where that came from basically but sucks quite yeah. a lot 
I know. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I'm sure it's very similar in the UK. And there's actually, I'm trying to remember, I think, okay, so I believe, don't necessarily quote me on this, but I believe this idea comes from this book that I read a few months ago called Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. But in it, she kind of says that where it's like, basically, like, through the forces of assimilation, you have to compromise aspects of your identity in order to become, whether it's more British or more American. And and I don't know, like, I personally feel that's wrong. Um, but I also, I think, I okay, so this is kind of get going to get a little bit into our disagreement, or like a little bit more into our disagreement about like dictionaries and definitions, because I think it's fascinating what you were saying about how like, you know, like for example, the French have that that department in their ministry, like I'm not surprised, but um, about how, you know, like English ha- is almost 75% French or something and, and like that fluidity and um yeah just like shifting aspect of language um I think I hadn't exactly thought about it before but I definitely agree because I I also so in that in that scenario I agree because I I feel that culture is like that as well and I think about this a lot um in terms of like Filipino American culture or like Filipino culture in general is that like there's this big question that I see a lot about like oh well what is Filipino culture if we've been colonized for the past 500, 600 years? Mm. And I don't think that, I don't think that pre-colonial culture is our culture. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that there is space for all the changes that Filipinos have undergone because Mm. at our core, there's actually this really interesting video that I'll link to the show notes um, that was shared to me, shared with me by a friend. Um, and it's this woman, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but speaking about how there's this text in her research that was from, I think, like, either, er, like, early colonies, early colonialism in the Philippines, or right before, where it kind of describes the way that Filipinos, or it describes the way that Filipinos were, and a lot of those traits are very similar to the way they are today, mm-hmm. or the way we are today, excuse me. So I think her argument was like, yes, we've undergone all these colonial changes, and there are changes that you can see in our culture, but those are all surface level changes and not changes at our core, um, which I thought was super interesting. But so when it comes to like dictionaries and definitions and how it relates to my personal relationship with language and maybe even on a broader sense is I feel, and I actually did do a little bit of research, but I feel that um, dictionaries historically have been created. I'm not so sure about now but have historically been created by those in power, namely white men. Like, for example, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary was originally written by Noah Webster, and the English Dictionary was originally written by Samuel Johnson. Of course, now it's, um, you know, it's it's collected, or it's, like, added to by a bunch of editors. Um, But I I think what was underlying the post that I wrote is that understanding that, like, Cause I definitely used to be the person like in essays, even probably on some posts in winter's bloom where I would go and search the dictionary definition. And I'd be like, Oh, this is what the dictionary says is this. But now I've been, I've kind of been in this mindset where I've been like, well, why am I, why am I quoting this when it was written by someone, a dead white man, basically, mm-hmm. however long ago. And I'm using this to define my understanding of this. Um, mm-hmm. So that that ju- that was just to give a little bit more background on my end, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, um, thank you for actually providing that extra context because I think um, that for me wasn't that didn't come across basically this this extra thought in the in the post. Um, so I think that definitely adds like an extra layer now to my understanding of your post, if that makes sense. Um, but I think my view on I guess dictionaries and definitions I think I would separate the two firstly and say that definitions are um serve a really important purpose in creating a common ground for for understanding and for providing clarity and so in that sense I think it's crucial for facilitating communication um of course with the caveat like you said um that definitions have been created by certain people um, and that the language we use may also have like widely 
accepted significance, but is also, of course, coloured by our experiences, where we've encountered that word, where we've heard it used before, the texture that we give to using that word, how we slightly manipulate it and, you know, um, take it away from its, like, pure meaning or dictionary definition. Um, But I think dictionaries, on the other hand, are are different from definitions and the fact that I think they are somewhat more fixed. Um, And I think they really just provide a snapshot of a period of time um, in a language's evolution, because I don't think language is static and I think it's always constantly evolving. Um, I think we just tend to think, in my opinion, that definitions are a lot more solid than they are because language changes happens happens over like really long periods of time they happen over centuries um but there's this interesting podcast i actually wanted to mention and i've hold on got the name (laughs) um it's called the history of english podcast by kevin shroud i don't know if you've heard of it but um shout out to to my boo thing no i'm kidding i'm not gonna call that but (laughs) my boyfriend actually recommended this podcast to me and um (laughs) it's really interesting so he takes in the very first episode the um the Lord's Prayer and he looks at it how it would have been said in like old English um middle English and then like modern English and even like through just listening to that first episode it made me realize how skewed I think my perception was at least about language development and like what classifies old English middle English and modern English like I think for me I thought Shakespeare was like old English <laughs> and he's not, he's actually mod- like Shakespeare English is classified as modern English because it still wow. sits in the time frame of whatever linguists, I can't remember it now, but linguists define a certain time frame as that being like a, the evolution of a language before it goes on to the next stage. And so just thinking about the fact that Shakespeare is, you know, still classified as modern English, but we don't speak in Shakespearean <laughs> language. Um, I think it shows how much language does change over a fairly long period of time, but then how kind of skewed our perception is of, you know, how language changes and whether it's um, static or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think language does change and definitions do shift over a long period of time. But I also think that the change can sometimes be bold and it can be spontaneous. Um, so like in 2016, I remember I was still um, at university studying Italian and um, this, I can't remember how old he was, quite a young boy, um, essentially in secondary school or middle school, um, invented a new word, which was petaloso, which means full of petals. And it's a word mm-hmm. which makes sense <laughs> grammatically in Italian in that, you know, petal or petolo is a petal. Um, so the, the noun and then the suffix um also means fill of but it doesn't exist in the Italian language and there was this whole like really big debate to be honest it was quite big for <laughs> what it was when you think about the fact that Italy's economy is crashing and you know they have all these racist politicians <laughs> but anyway anything to distract from the realities of the world um so there's this huge debate about whether um they should coin this word and whether this kid should be allowed to invent this word and it got sent to like the ministry of whoever um and it is now on the in the dictionary um and I think it might seem like you know which it did to me at the time quite superfluous it's like it's just a word why does it matter if it exists or not like this kid's teacher's a bit extra you know writing to the ministry of education (laughs) about it but I think for Italian society which is a society that I would say is in many ways quite static um and stagnant in its beliefs allowing something like this even though it is a frivolous word um does in a sense give hope or space um to the coining of more important words um you know to describe i don't know injustices or um just words that that haven't historically existed to kind of give um substance to experience um and I think that's definitely as I said I I mentioned English language before and how kind of fluid it is and I think that is particularly the case in in London um 
which is where I was born and grew up, <laughs> born and bred, um, we have this thing called multicultural London English, which I think we would define as a social socialect, so like a dialect, but like a social dialect <laughs> that emerged in the late um, 20th century, I want to say amongst like the working class, um, particularly after, you know, post-World War II. And there's essentially a mishmash of um, the cultural influx that came from like Caribbean migrants, um, migrants from India, from West Africa, and that need for a common language um, that captured, you know, shared experiences between people who carried with themselves their own experience of language and what it meant to them. Um, and so I think, yeah, I feel like definitions essentially are born out of necessity. Um, and yeah, I think that's basically... I'll hand it over to you. I'll stop there because I've been it When you said that the Italians are maybe being a little bit extra about this definition, it just reminded me of this time where we were in Sicily together. And I couldn't exactly understand because I don't speak Italian or Sicilian, but like your host yeah. family was just like really gesturing and like speaking really <laughs> loudly about something. And I remember asking you, like it looked like they were about to have a fight. <laughs> we're asking you what they were talking about and you're like oh yeah they're talking about the difference between a fridge and a freezer <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> do you remember that <laughs> i don't actually that's how extra they are <laughs> of course it would leave my head even the word extra like is such a you know it's a word that anyway um doesn't stick to a def- like dictionary definition but it's like used quite a lot in vernacular <laughs> anyway that just brought up that memory and i wanted to share it but um yeah, I mean, I think so there's a lot in what you said that I that I agree with. And I would also say so. OK, so I think you're right. I think that, um, you know, definitions can definitely uh, come organically and like come from, you know, the bottom up kind of thing and be created for a specific need from a specific community. Um, but I think you're right to kind of distinguish definitions from dictionaries because at least my view and if someone is an expert on dictionaries please reach out to us um because neither of us are experts in dictionaries <laughs> I, view of dictionaries I actually have a phd in dictionaries Natasha I'll have you there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I don't. <laughs> what, a, what a degree if someone does have that though please reach out because that's quite a cool and if yeah. agree, I want to know what you do with your life <laughs> yeah <laughs> But I feel I feel that dictionaries are kind of this almost like top down structure where it's like, you know, there's all these editors working on what gets included in these dictionaries and what doesn't. And I actually wanted to read this quote from this article. There's there's a quite a bit in this article that I don't agree with, but basically it starts off. Um, there's this woman, I, I believe, Dr. Mitchum, um, and she was wanting to redefine the term racism in the mm. Merriam-Webster dictionary because in a lot of like you know anti-racism communities basically in the U.S. we'll just like focus on this term racism in the U.S. the large major- majority I would say of the population when they hear the term racism they think of uh the KKK and they think of like lynching and like actions of racism mm. But, you know, there's been all this education and actually this other definition of racism has been around for a long time, just not in the limelight of systemic racism, of this thing that like there are systems in place um, that perpetuate and that create these racist outcomes that basically stack the deck against certain people based on their quote unquote race Mm. or like visible race or whatever. Um, And so basically the... So in this article, hold on, let me scroll up. There are, it shows what the definitions are. So at the time that this article was written, um, which was August 8th, 2020, um, the definitions for racism are one, a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superior, superiority of a particular race. Definition two, a doctrine or political program based on the assumption of racism and designed to execute its principles. Um, slash a political or social system founded on racism and definition three racial prejudice or discrimination so in that scenario 
D2, the second definition, would be most close to this like systemic form of racism. But um, anyway, the quote that I wanted to read, um, which is is part of the reason why I believe that maybe I'll, I'll reword my statement that like dictionaries are more static, um, is kind of based on this quote. So as Merriam-Webster explains in a note appended to its current entry for racism, the lexicographers, which are the people who write definitions, role is to explain how words are or have been actually used, not how some may feel that they should be used. As it turns out, definition one and definition two in their current forms capture the actual use of racism by ordinary English speakers very well, while terms like systemic racism and structural racism have made inroads into the working vocabularies of many English speakers, they aren't used with consistent meanings and they are usually assimilated to definition one or definition two in ways that are inconsistent with critical social justice theory. So the issues I have with that quote is they say they capture the actual use of racism by ordinary English speakers very well. Who's who's defining who those ordinary English speakers are? You know what I'm saying? Like, like we already have seen in the U.S. at least um, that there are perspectives that are either purposefully or just like accidentally through the way that our society is set up are not heard and are not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think to claim that the definition one and two are consistent with like the actual use of racism makes a lot of assumptions. Um, And I don't know who wrote this. Maybe they have dealt with those assumptions. Um, But just reading that one quote makes me a little uncomfortable. And so I guess, yeah, I guess when it comes to definitions, I do agree with you. But when it comes to dictionaries, I think that, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's like a, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit mistrustful. (laughs) That makes sense. And I think, um, you know, like, it's interesting that we have this podcast, of course, because Natasha lives in the US and I live in the UK. And I think, um, <laughs> uh, correct me if, my, if I'm wrong, but I just remember either in sixth form or at university, I used that dictionary because there's like an online version of it, right? What is it called? The Mi- Miriam Webster uh, Dictionary. Yeah, so I used that. And I remember my teacher, either at school or my lecture, being like, it's not a trustworthy dictionary. If you're going to use a dictionary, use the Oxford Dictionary. And so (laughs) I think I've always had that prejudice towards like the website where I'm like, oh, like I would never go on that dictionary to look to look for a a definition because I've just been told by someone when I was younger (laughs) and more, um, what's the word, kind of impressionable that that was like a really bad source to use or wasn't like a reliable source. Um, And I think, yeah, that just kind of brought to my attention perhaps the way that I don't know if you've had a look or you've used like the Oxford English Dictionary when you've been in the UK. But I feel that judging from what this guy has said, at least, um, I feel like it's approached in a different way. And it's, but it was interesting as well that he, um, as in it, sorry, let me finish that thought, approached in a different way in terms of how the definition is made or is written in the dictionary. And it's not based on common usage in the Oxford Dictionary. It's based on academic understanding of what the word means. Um, so I thought it was quite interesting that the article referred to the distinction between, you know, like this is, or at least brought up the fact that that definition was based on, yeah, like you said, whoever these normal everyday people are that use that term. Um, but again, just to play <laughs> devil's advocate a bit, I think um, what, when you were saying that, what was what came to mind was actually a discussion I had about what racism meant and the difference between racial prejudice which anyone can have and racism and to back up my argument I actually did have to go to the dictionary and be like look this is what the Oxford dictionary says this is what you know racism means when we talk about it in the academic sphere and not just based on experience so this is like the not pure sense of the word but if we're having this debate which we were then I think it was important that we you know we're having an intellectual debate we refer to a source that's not anecdotal in a way um and I'm not to say sorry just to caveat that not to say that you know experiences aren't important but it was a kind of intellectual exercise but besides the point as well um similarly when I was kind of discussing with someone what cultural appropriation meant um and they were kind of getting really like um 
anecdotal with what they thought it meant. I was like, okay, let's look at what the de- the definition means because especially a word like or a term like cultural appropriation, which is ironically appropriated in many different contexts to mean many different things. It's used quite flippantly. I think having that dictionary definition was really important in that conversation and trying to help someone who was in a position of privilege, as I am as well, but um, from a different background, to understand what that meant and why me exchanging something with a Bengali friend was not culture appropriation compared to a white person wearing my traditional clothing. Um, and so I think there mm. is, you know, that inevitable thing with everything in life where it's going to benefit you <laughs> and kick you in the teeth at another point. Um, and I think it's just important to hold both of those two. Yeah, so I think that this is super fascinating. And I also want to push back a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, go for it. Because, okay, so <laughs> there's a few, no, a few things. Um, I think there's definitely like this is more maybe more of a thought process or a thought experiment excuse me but um so you mentioned you mentioned like how it's useful to have these definitions to like kind of be on the same understanding you know like in this conversation with your friend about appropriation um, and then you also mentioned like anecdotal stuff and um, I think that that's super interesting because I, I do agree with you I think that definitions can be super helpful okay so bear with me there's like three different thoughts going on in my mind right now. Um, Mm -hmm. The first is that, so um, when I did my master's, I wrote my dissertation as an autoethnography, which um, is kind of this like super personal way, basically, of like doing research on yourself. So it's like Mm -hmm. definitely like based in anecdote. Um, And I did that because I like throughout all of my undergrad, I had learned in this way where it was like, oh, there's a way to be objective when you're doing research, like you can stand outside of the experiment. And more and more, as like, I became less and less impressionable. (laughs) um, I'm feeling that that's not the case. I feel that we are intimately involved in everything. Um, whether it's a science experiment or like walking down the street or whatever, you know, like I don't think that you can stand outside of something. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's why I did that, even though like it was kind of uncomfortable to do it. Like I was like, I want anyway, whatever. We don't have to get into that. But basically what I'm trying to say, and this is a conversation I have with my dad a lot because my dad is also very scientific minded. And sometimes it can be challenging to have conversations with him where he wants to see the data and he wants to see the academic source. And I'm like, but there are all these power dynamics like in that as well. You know, for example, he's like, oh, I can't remember exactly. Okay. I don't want to give, I don't want to give like a fake example, but I'm trying. Okay. So basically we were talking about, you know, COVID, the impact of COVID on different communities and he was like, well, where's the data for this? And I was like, well, I can try and go find data, but understand, take a minute to pause and be like, why would people fund, for example, like research into a certain community if they have historically not been researched because of like, and I realized that this is really vague and it would probably be more helpful if I had a specific example. Um so maybe this isn't the most effective, but, but I think that within research, the reason why I'm basically what I'm trying to say is the reason why I'm a little bit wary as well about like citing sources and stuff like that, even though I recognize that there's a time and place where that is useful is that there is an underlying assumption with all these academic resources that they are unbiased. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not the case because who's funding this research? Why is this research being done? Why is research not being done on these other populations? Like, for example, black populations or indigenous populations, uh, Mm. homeless populations. You know what I'm saying is because there's either no interest or people just don't, you know, want to fund that kind of research. Um, And so I've been at the space in my life where I'm trying to make more space within myself and also just within conversations that I have to privilege these anecdotes because often these anecdotes are all that we have. And yeah, so I've lost my train of thought on the other thing, but I just wanted to push back in that way. 
Yeah, no, and I think that's a very, yeah, like valuable um, perspective and a really important one to remind me of. So I thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, <laughs> very formal. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I, and I definitely agree with that. I think the reason why, this is kind of fresh in my mind actually, because I was just redrafting a paper that I was working on um, yesterday evening for um, this journal, and it's about um, Black women's um, the disparities that black women, black British women, sorry, face in accessing maternal health care services. And this is kind of going into a separate conversation, which I actually would be interested to have here um, at some point, especially because the NHS, there's just been this really big inquiry into the National Health Service in the UK about um, systemic racism in maternity care. So I'm kind of interested to see how that unfolds too. But um, I my paper was peer reviewed and one of the comments that I got you know, I made this really bold statement and I felt really (laughs) like empowered writing it. I was just like, I've literally just shown you the statistics. Like I had a table, the statistics, mortality rates, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then the statement was um, with such state, something along the phrase, uh, along the lines of with such statements like this, like these or such statements, sorry, such statistics as these, it's clear that the one um, factor underlining all of this is race and racism. And the comment that I got back was, it's, you know, like he was like, yeah, as a black man, the person who was reviewing it, I completely see that conclusion and it's logical and it makes sense because the statistics are there. You've explored the different factors. But a statement like that, he was like, I wonder how that would land with a wider audience that isn't as sympathetic, as open to it. And I know it's ridiculous to say, and that wasn't even me using, you know, anecdotal evidence that was like actual hard, hard facts (laughs) in quotations. Um, but I think what I've learned, and again, it kind of goes actually say there's a time and place for using it. Like I wouldn't sit down with you or I don't think, I mean, it depends, but I, I think it's less likely <laughs> you or with another person of color that I would sit down and get the dictionary definition of what racism is because it's a felt and it's a shared experience and we know what it feels like. Um, but for someone who doesn't share that experience, I think sometimes that dictionary definition can bridge the gap between them before they can even receive the anecdotal, you know, experience. They need to understand it logically and cognitively. And um, from what I've learned about um, empathy (laughs) from this counselling course (laughs) I'm doing um, in my journey to become a therapist, there are three main types of empathy the first one's cognitive empathy so you understand cognitively what someone is saying like you understand the logistics of their arguments their story whatever you can comprehend it then there's person empathy which is you accept well actually I would put that at the end even though there's there's no particular order this goes in in my head it just makes sense (laughs) so the second one is um emotional um or affective empathy which is you're able to share that experience and you know put yourself that typical thing of putting yourself in that person's shoe and understanding what that would feel like. Um, and even that idea of empathizing is not like what it would feel like from my perspective, but really like, can I actually even imagine what their worldview is like and feel that experience from that perspective? Not like a comparison, mm. which, you know, I think empathy gets mistaken or like, as a word, definition gets misconstrued of what that means to be empathetic. <laughs> and thirdly, it's person and uh, person empathy, which is fully viewing that person as a whole being in all their multifaceted ways and, you know, putting together all, at least in my head, that makes sense, putting together the, co- like I cognitively understand what they're saying. I can see it from their perspective and I see them as a human and I understand what their their feelings are. And so I think <laughs> to not I don't want to spend too much time like this being a push back and forth but I think there have just been moments in my life where I'm like yeah I understand why I need to depart from the dictionary definition why I need to depart from the statistics before I can even make an appeal with you know my lived experience because unfortunately the world we live in that's not it's still even like in research it's still quite recent like the whole flexivity mm. um and positionality and all of that um but who knows, the conversation might be different 100 years from now. <laughs> okay, Th- yeah, thanks, Sophia, for sharing that. Um, I mean, yeah, I feel that this conversation has definitely been, it's definitely, like, stretched my my thinking a little bit and, like, helped me reframe things in certain ways. And 
and a conclusion that I've been I'd like I feel to be honest that we could keep talking about this for probably yeah. another hour <laughs> um but we want to respect each other's times and y'all's time as the listener as well um I think I think one of the takeaways that I'm going to I'm going to take from this conversation with you is um you know this idea that that both of our perspectives everything we've mentioned here can be true at the same time mm-hmm. and equally in different scenarios as you were just mentioning like one way of approaching definitions or dictionaries or understanding and meaning in general mm-hmm. may be more appropriate in a certain context than another mm-hmm. um but yeah i i just really appreciate that we had this ability to kind of like present the ways that we were feeling and and i really feel with you and this is something that i'm, I'm trying to like figure with all my other relationships too is like I really feel with you that we're not necessarily trying to convince each other of mm-hmm. our way of seeing which I think is really important so if there's any takeaways that y'all as listeners um, can take is like when you enter these challenging conversations try to set a space for like the two of you or the three of you or whoever where you're not like you go into it knowing you're not trying to convince each other because yeah. I think that is where like that is where the frustration arises and the tendency to like buy into this zero sum mentality where it's like, oh, well, if you're not going to see my way, then like whatever, you know, or if I'm not yeah. going to see your way kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, before we close out, I wanted to pass it back over to you, Sophia. Are there any takeaways or last thoughts about this conversation? Yeah, I just want to say I really enjoyed this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, again, I, I think well one thing that I've actually taken away from what you said and then I guess I'll get on very briefly to my reflections um is a really important reminder like you said about who is funding things like what is the motive and intentions behind things um because as you said it's kind of easy to take it as as the gospel or you know like the given word that this is the dictionary definition and that's just it um but like how did that come to be um which is why I think as well for me like looking at the etymology of words and like you know historical context in which it was used and seeing how that's evolved um is I don't know really fun if you're a geek but also like really important like you were saying um so thank you for reminding me of that and I kind of just wanted to reflect as well on like this conversation I guess as a kind of model for respectful disagreement I think I just want to highlight the fact that yeah I think we we both really respect each other um and I think without I mean, not without that respect, but I feel like that is a foundational element for this to be a constructive conversation. Um, and also what you were saying, I, I wouldn't say that we've compromised. Like, see, this is language failing to <laughs> signify what I mean. But I feel like we have kind of somewhat met a middle ground. Like, I would agree with what you've just said now, that different contexts, you know, call for different courses of action and two things can be true at once and so I would say as well in all types of relationships and you know relationships in general I think compromising is really important and it doesn't mean like that you don't hold true what you think but I think just understanding and validating that person's opinion doesn't mean you have to agree with it even if you don't come to come to this middle ground or whatever um yeah and I think the very last thing I wanted to say (laughs) was um actually a recommendation because I I really love this um, YouTube channel and website. It's called (laughs) Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. So, you know, if you're not like satisfied with your own dictionary, (laughs) you can do what John Koenig, I think is how I say his name, did and just create your own dictionary. But it's, um, it's a website and a YouTube channel. And he was creating a book, but I don't know what's happened to that. It's kind of fallen off the radar. But he essentially coins new words for emotions that don't currently have the descriptive definition. And he does it in such a smart way. Like he looks at the etymology of words and meanings, um, the meanings of words from different languages. He uses different prefix and suffixes and word roots to kind of create these new words. Um, So there's something like, you know, from deja vu, there's deja or something. I can't remember it, but that word means perceiving this that this moment is already going to be a memory and it's just really smart um and interesting how he plays with words so if you are a word geek then check it out that's awesome thanks Sophia yeah I've just done a quick google search and it looks awesome so (laughs) definitely link that to the show notes 
Um, but thanks y'all for bearing with our disagreement <laughs> and we will speak with you next time. Bye. Bye.